Okay, so first an explanation for why I chose a feather scenario. I think of feathers in the wind. A feather is controlled by the wind. And Jesus likened the wind to the Holy Spirit, or likened the Holy Spirit to the wind. So you can't control a feather in the wind. And neither can anyone control women. With that, we'll begin. What in the world is male headship theology? You notice I put male in parentheses. That's because Jerry Chudley, who wrote a very nice little book uh, on male headship theology, uh, does that. So I'm assuming that the majority of the times people call it headship theology, they assume the male part. So let's look at what it is. A view of authority and submission to authority ascribed to God the Father over the Son, that is, he has the authority over the Son, who submits to him and to all men over all women, but especially husbands over wives, so that the Son, that is Jesus, obeys the Father in all things, and wives obey their husbands in all things. You probably have heard the story of the woman who was about to get married. She was uh, standing before her husband, and the minister began to read the vows, and he came to the word obedience. He said, no, (laughs) I will not obey. (laughs) Uh, The view rose in the 1970s and 1980s when several Calvinists, that is, Reformed theologians, including Wayne Grudem and John Piper, developed a hierarchical system organized around what they call the headship (laughs) principle. It got introduced to the Adventist church by Bill Gothard. How many of you remember Bill Gothard? If you're my age uh, and older, you would remember him. To whose seminars Adventists flocked and brought with them young people to hear Gothard speak regarding his caption, God's Chain of Command. One of his metaphors pictures the father as a hammer pounding on the mother, the chisel, to chisel off the imperfections of the child, who was the diamond. Uh, I remember this well because my brother and his family attended Bill Gothard's seminars. And he came spouting Bill Gothard's stuff. (laughs) And uh, I I remember my hair kind of curling as I listened to what he was saying. I I had a hard time understanding why my brother would be enchanted with it. He, of course, no longer is that way at all. Some of the biblical passages that are used to support Christ's subordination, and remember that the base of this uh, male headship view is that Christ is subordinate to the Father. So we have earthly subordination, in uh, these texts, Hebrews 10, 7, John 4, 34, and 8, 28, uh, Jesus came to do God's will. He spoke not on his own authority, but as the Father told him. Uh, eternal subordination. The Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. John five nineteen. There the word Son denotes a subordinate role to the word Father. So it's inherent in the word Son. If, he had, if he's a son, he's subordinate to the father. And of course, that's viewing the word father as an authority figure. And so the God, the father, uh, is predominantly about authority. And then there's these other texts. Uh, I'm not going to go through them. 
because I have quite a few slides and we don't have a lot of time. So now we come to Old Testament passages used to support male headship. The man was created first, indicating headship over the woman. The woman led the man into sin, therefore she is the one to blame for the fall. God cursed the woman with being ruled by her husband. Uh, God ordained an all-male priesthood. The woman plays a role like Satan in Job, telling Job to curse God and die. So, I guess you can use the Bible to demonize women. <laughs> That's the idea. New Testament passages used to support male headship include that Jesus ordained all male disciples. He later appointed 70 other disciples, all men. The Holy Spirit was to be poured out on the apostles, all men. And uh, women are to wear a head covering because of the following. A man is an image and reflection of God. Woman is the reflection of man. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. This is all from 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of his wife. And then we have the two other famous passages from Paul. Women should be silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. With that, let silence reign. <laughs> let a woman learn in silence. This is 1 Timothy 2, with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For man, Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. A story about 1 Corinthians 14. I was teaching this in women in the Bible class many, many years ago. It was actually Gen X generation I was teaching. And a young woman sitting in the front row said, oh, that's where they got it. And then she told the story. Her brother was attending a very conservative Baptist church in the South. And she went to visit him. And they went to church together on Sunday. And uh, they were sitting there enjoying the service, and she was saying enthusiastically, she really liked the sermon, so she was saying, amen, amen, and finally her brother poked her and said, shh, women cannot speak in church. So, I was a little nonplussed, I didn't know they would take it to that extreme, at least her brother took it to that extreme. Uh, but she was really perturbed about that. Uh, we went on to explain the passage. Now we come to male headship in the Adventist Church. According to Jerry Chudley, who thoroughly researched this teaching in the Seventh Adventist Church, the modern headship doctrine was unknown in the Adventist Church or the Christian Church before the 1970s and never appeared in any published book or article written by an Adventist before 1987. Uh, and he, I, in his footnote, he says that male headship resembles pre-reformation Catholic teachings regarding the role of women in the church. 
So he finds that absent in the following official church documents, the 1980 Fundamental Beliefs, the GC Working Policy, the Church Manual, the Minister's Manual, or the GC Official Statements. It is also missing from the SDA Bible Commentary, the Encyclopedia, the Dictionary, the Source Book, and nothing of it is found in the Baptismal Certificate, the Voice of Prophecy, Discovered Bible Lessons, or SDA textbooks on any educational level. Neither is it present in Sabbath school portalies or in any book or article written by an administrator. <laughs> so where did it come from? Well, many of the proponents of male hedge theology are Calvinists, including Boyle Gothard, who gave it to Adventists who came to hear him. Adventists historically have never been Calvinists. This is a reminder of our roots here. But we come through the Arminian lineage of the Anabaptists, English Baptists, and Methodists. Our roots are radical reformation rather than Protestant reformation. Samuel Bakioki wrote books in which he adopted male headship theology, never citing a single Adventist source for it. Later books by Adventist authors condemning women's ordination cite no Adventist sources before Bakioki's. From this vantage point, it is possible to view male headship theology and Adventism as a Trojan. So early Adventists and women in ministry. Early Adventists were forced to deal with the question of whether women should be permitted to speak in church. And you guess what? I think you all know. Uh, in one case, George C. Tenney from Australia responded in an Australian church paper, The Bible Echo, to a question, will you kindly give your opinion upon 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 1 Timothy 2.12, where the apostle seems to teach that women should not speak in the churches. Tenney responded with an article in which he stated, It is the work of the gospel to remove distinctions among men in race, nationality, sex, or condition. Paul declares that there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ. Amen. This text has a generic application. It is of universal force wherever the gospel reaches In light of such a statement, how can women be excluded from the privileges of the gospel? Uriah Smith, editor of the Review and Herald, republished his article. It is clear that Tenney believed that some statements in scripture contain plain teachings or principles that apply to all times and places, whereas others, such as the two in question, contain specific counsel for a particular situation or time and place. And I want to add to that. Um, I cite in, in my bibliography for this, a, an article written by Darius uh, Yankovic in, in the SCA Theological Seminary. He does a study of slavery in the early 1800s and notes that there's a very different hermeneutical use of scripture between slave owners and abolitionists. The abolitionists, like Tenney, apply the main overarching principles that apply to all times and places and and do not apply to their specific situation uh, texts that apply to a specific situation in another time and place. So right here, Tenney views Galatians 3.28 as the overarching principle we're to follow. He views 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 1 Timothy 2.12 as particular to a particular time and place and situation. Uh, I have some more from his article. 
the difficulty with these texts is almost entirely chargeable to immature conclusions reached in regard to them. It is manifestly illogical and unfair to give to any pastor passage of Scripture an unqualified radical meaning that is at variance with the main tenor of the Bible and directly in conflict with its plain teachings. The Bible may be reconciled in all its parts without going outside the lines of consistent interpretation. But great difficulty is to be experienced by those who interpret isolated passages in an independent light according to the ideas they happen to entertain upon them. Those who were brought up to believe it would be a shame for women to speak in meetings look no farther than these texts and give them sweeping application. Critics of the Bible, critics of womankind, as well as women, who are looking for an excuse for idleness, seize these passages in the same manner. By misuse of these texts, many conscientious people are led into a misconception of what Paul meant to teach. So now, uh, let's look a little more at women and early Adventists. Adventist women seem to have had greater freedom and respect to work in areas other churches allotted only to men. In other words, while other churches... Uh, allotted certain positions only to men. The Adventist Church opened those positions up to women. Uh, B.F. Robbins wrote for the review, Here in the precious promise there is neither male or female, all are one in Christ Jesus. I know that most of us have been gathered into the message of the third angel from sectarian churches where we received our religious training, which we now in the clear light of God's truth see was defective both in doctrine and practice. And we are aware that in some of them, the prejudice against women's efforts and labors in the church have crushed out her usefulness. And between 1850, when the review first came out, and 1863, when the church was organized, eight articles appeared supporting women's public speaking ministry. Significant are some of the names attached to these articles. Mowat, Welcome, Hewitt, Robbins, James White, and Uriah Smith. Some of those you probably don't know. But uh, certainly James White and Uriah Smith were important figures in the early Adventist church. And of course, Ellen White added her voice. Not a hand should be bound, not a soul discouraged, not a voice should be hushed. Let every individual labor privately or publicly to help forward this grand work. Uh, Place the burdens upon men and women of the church. They may grow by reason of the exercise and thus become effective agents in the hand of the Lord for the enlightenment of those who sit in darkness. Just before this last statement, Ellen White wrote, Women who are willing to consecrate some of their time to the service of the Lord should be appointed to visit the sick, look after the young, and minister to the necessities of the poor. They should set apart to this work by prayer and laying on of hands. In some cases, they will need to counsel with church officers or the minister, but if they are devoted women, maintaining a vital connection with God, they will be a power for good in the church. So note the laying on of hands. And something I didn't bring out in the slides that I need to mention is that um, Yankovic has has done a thorough study of ordination, the history of ordination, and, and he's not the only one. Others have been saying for years that the word ordain is not in the Bible. It's not a biblical term. The only term for setting people apart for ministry was laying on hands. So when Ellen White says that the women should be set apart for the work by praying and laying on of hands, she's talking about the closest we get to New Testament ordination. The first time that we find ordain in the church is when they took on the Roman 
I'm talking about the Roman Empire view of ordination and the word ordain in, Rome, in, in Latin uh, and applied it strictly to men. And that's pretty much when, I believe, when women were excluded from the ministry at that point. Uh, then she, uh, she says, if men and women would act as the Lord's helping hand, doing deeds of love and kindness, uplifting the oppressed, rescuing those ready to perish, the glory of the Lord would be their reward. Of those who act as his helping hand, the Lord says, you shall be named priest of the Lord. Men shall call you ministers of our God. Now I'm going to bring my uh, favorite method of, teach, of uh, reading the Old Testament to this. Uh, I, I believe that Jesus read the Old Testament this way in Matthew 19 when he talks about divorce. And he says that uh, Moses allowed you to divorce because of the stiffness of your necks and the hardness of your hearts. But in the beginning, it was not so. And I, I see Jesus as pointing to two expressions of God's will. The first expression of his will is the expression of his preferred will. And it's usually first in a narrative sequence or tied to creation. The second uh, will expressed in the Old Testament is his will adapted to the choices that human beings make. So uh, I use this method a little bit in my slide presentation to talk about headship, period, uh, not just male headship. So my criteria for doing this is that the uh, minor voice of God's preferred will, which I call minor because it's less frequent. Uh, the major voice of God's will is dominant in the Old Testament. So the criteria is that it's tied to creation, especially Genesis 1 and 2. comes first in a narrative sequence, which usually follows this sequence. Minor voice, that is God's preferred will. People's choice, a major voice, that is God's will adapted to the will of the people. It stands out as unique in the context of the ancient Near East. That is, God's preferred will does not usually mirror, is not usually mirrored by the ancient Near East. And uh, it may become dominant in the New Testament. Well, sometimes that's uh, a mixed bag. In Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1, 26 to 27, let us make humankind in our image. By the way, the word Adam, humankind, is a generic term for human. Uh, it comes from the word adma, which means soil or earth. And the best interpretation or best translation of Adam is earthling. Someone who comes from the earth. So let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them, and notice the word them, have dominion over the natural world. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over nature. So there we have clearly that male and female are created in the image of God. They are to reflect the image of God. Now we come to uh, chapter 2, verse 18, which is, th this chapter is, is most used to show that because man was created first and woman was created to be his helper, therefore uh, man should dominate from creation. Well, let's look at that term helper 
Azer. It's true, it's never applied to men. But it is applied to God as the helper of Israel. So if we're going to apply dominance to the man because the woman is his helper, then we need to apply dominance to Israel with God as its helper. Does that make sense? Do you follow the logic there? Uh, so, And I don't think we would want to do that. <laughs> so, Azer is not a term of subordination. You can't use it that way and be true to the term itself. Uh, then, as his partner, an uh, RSV translation, uh, this word kenegdo means alongside of, as an equal. So Genesis 2.24, I think, is an important to note. Therefore a man leaves his father and mother, becomes joined to his wife, and they become one flesh. This probably was written during the second millennium when the house of the father was dominant. The house of the father is a term defined in the Hebrew Bible to denote patrimonialism. We used to call it patriarchy. Uh, but uh, the current term seems to be patrimonialism. And in patrimonialism, the man, the, say the firstborn son, would always stay in his, his father's property, and his wife would have to leave her family and join him and be joined to him. And she would be dominated by him, by his father, by uh, his mother, uh, everybody uh, in that family. This is anti-patrilocal here. And we call that patrilocal when the, when the woman has to leave the family and go to the husband. Uh, Genesis 2.24 says, no, in creation model, uh, the man leaves his family, joins to his wife, and they become one flesh. So conclusions from creation stories. Humans were not created to rule over one another. Let's, let's just take this a little bit further than just the marriage or women and men and gender relationships. The Bible makes it very clear that we were created to rule only over the natural world. And by, and by the way, the background of that is that the natural world, or pieces of the natural world, were, were viewed as slave masters over the, and, and gods who were slave masters over human beings. Vicki? Logic or the intention is that man was created first and woman was created second. Is that fish, fowl, and animals were created before man? <laughs> <laughs> if, if you were to take the logic back, yes, that's true. <laughs> and in fact, fish were created for lions. So, so the the. The idea is, from the creation stories, humans are not created to rule over one another, but to live as equals. Now we come to Genesis 3. Contrary to what the male headship proponents maintain, that God curses the woman, the truth is that God only curses the serpent and the ground, not the man or the woman. You read it carefully. There's no curse applied. He does pronounce woes on them. They are going to suffer. But he does not pronounce a curse. So one of these woes is the woman's desire would be for her husband and he would rule over her. The word rule, mashal, 
is used of the great light ruling by day and the lesser light ruling by night. So how does the great light, the sun, rule by day and the moon by night? Simply being what it is. So this is not necessarily, this is in the context of of, uh, the two creation stories. So it does not mean that man is supposed to rule his wife and dominate her in the sense of taking control of her. Genesis 3 denotes a new state from the man and the woman. If we read this passage as God's optimal preferred will, this is what happen, happens. We take the passage about woman and lift it out of the context and ignore the rest of the passage. But if we follow the same rule consistently, if we read this passage as God's optimal preferred will for women, then it is equally God's optimal preferred will that men's toil by the sweat of their brow, that thorns and thistles grow, and that men die. You like that? You want to apply the same rule to men as to the women? To be consistent in the passage, that's how we have to read it. So conclusion, though these consequences to sin represents God's will, represent God's will adapted to the new situation human beings find themselves in, not preferred will. Uh, and throughout Torah, there is a subtle inversion of hierarchy. In patrimonialism, the primogenitorship, that is the rights of inheritance, of the firstborn was honored. But here's how this was treated in Genesis and Exodus. Adam and Eve's firstborn, Cain, becomes a murderer and has to leave his home. Abraham, the firstborn, leaves his home and the rights of the firstborn to go as God led. God chooses Isaac, not Ishmael, to become the son of the promise. Jacob, not Esau, gains divine preference. Judah, not Reuben, gets the primogenitorship. Jacob pronounces Ephraim as greater than his older brother Manasseh. God chooses Moses, not Aaron, to lead Israel from Egypt. So there's this, this, I think it's intentional, this intentional rejection of the hierarchical model of the house of the father. So no women priests. Exodus 19.4-6 gives us the first encapsulation of the Sinai covenant. And this is what it says. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom or kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Is that meant for the, for the women or only the men? Both. Are the men included? I mean, the, yeah, the men are included, of course. But are the women included? I maintain that everyone who heard the Ten Commandments spoken from heaven was included in that message. All were to be priests. And this is, uh, all Israel were to be priests, and the male Aaronite priesthood is the result of the golden calf experience. God didn't intend originally an all-male priesthood. Conclusion. The Exodus 19, 4-6 passage represents God's preferred will, while the subsequent male priesthood represents God's adaptation to the people's choice and need. Now let's look at governance from a different perspective. Kingship. 
Early Israel was not a nation ruled by a monarchy. Think about judges. A few people served as judges, including one woman. In a kind of an ad hoc arrangement as needed, usually because Israel's neighbors oppressed them. To God, this was the result of their turning to other gods. Therefore, even the judges might be seen as God's adaptation to Israel's needs. In 1 Samuel 8, the Israelites demand a king of Samuel. In Samuel's subsequent exchange with God, God points out how the people have rejected him from being king over them. And then he changes the model. Instead of king and people, he has has God, prophet, king, and then people. And more than that, one of the things I didn't take the time to show, uh, God never called Saul a king, a melech. He called King Saul a nagi, a chieftain. And that term is interfaced. I've been reading Everett Fox's Early Prophets translation. And I've been uh, very interested to see how that word nagi keeps playing a role uh, throughout the early monarchy. David was supposed to be a nagi, not a melech. But the king keep calling him the king, the king. That's what they want. God's original plan then was for Israel to live out his model of a non-hierarchical community in which people lived out the principles of the Ten Commandments. They were to rely on God to keep them protected from their surrounding nations. And they were to each person live under their own vine fig tree, as it talks about in Isaiah. Now we come to Jesus and hierarchy. Jesus called them over and said, you know that the ones who are considered the rulers by the Gentiles show off their authority over them and their high-ranking officers order them around. But that's not the way it shall be with you. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first among you will be slave of all. For the Son of Man didn't come to be served but to rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. And to uh, Pilate, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. By the way, the way... The only way Pilate could condemn Jesus to death is if he proclaimed himself king. So he's trying to get that out of him. And Jesus said, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. And by the way, the, the lines preceding that, he says, when he says, so you are a king? Jesus responds, you, in fact, say that I'm a king. But for this I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. So Jesus came to present the truth, not to rule. And I couldn't resist putting in a little bit of a unity here, <laughs> since we've been discussing that lately. I asked not only in behalf of these, Jesus prays, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them. So that they may be one as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And then I have this text that may baffle you as to why I put this text on there. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what follows? Wives, be subject to your husbands. Husbands, treat your wives like Christ, who gave himself for the church. 
the reason I put these two together is I maintain that just as Jesus is subject to the Father, so the Father is subject to Jesus. That is the model of the Godhead. No woman apostles. We read a text where Jesus names Jesus' 12 disciples and then said also some women followed him around. Right? Mary eventually became called in certain segments of Christianity the apostle of the apostles. Junia is a woman, not a man. You would be interested to know the history of how she became a man. But anyway, uh, she is really a woman in the Greek. Uh, and she is called an apostle by Paul in Romans 16.7. The list in Romans 16 of Paul's fellow workers includes a number of women. Some have suggested since Jesus calls no blacks, no whites, but only Jewish men, that only Jewish men can be apostles. <laughs> The word apostle means one who is sent and is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So we have no governorship over who gets called to be an apostle, right? Ultimately, it is the Spirit who calls, anoints, and sends people, men and women, to give the gospel. And then Adventists cling to the priesthood of all believers. Jesus alone is our high priest. In John 17, 22-23, we just read, the body of Christ is one with many members, and come to Peter with a living stone, the rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And I forgot to put the slide that has three texts from Revelation about how we are a royal priesthood. How everybody will reign with Christ. Well, if everybody is a king, there's no one a king. Right? I mean, if everybody is a king, there's no one ruling. We're all equals. Now I'm going to quickly deal with passage problem passages of 1 Corinthians 11, 3-16. The easiest way is to say Paul is dealing with a particular problem in a particular church, which Corinth had a lot of problems. And we need to apply it simply to that time period. But there's a very curious and interesting uh, suggestion that I'm going to take you through by Daniel Arachea in the Bible Translator, where he suggests that Paul is quoting from a letter. And in Greek, there's no way to designate quotation marks. There's no quotation marks. But Paul received communication from the house of Chloe, presumably a letter, And it's Daniel Archea's belief that in these two passages, 1 Corinthians 11, 3-16, and 1 Corinthians 14, that he's quoting this letter. And the reason he thinks that is because Paul contradicts himself otherwise in this particular passage. Now I want you to realize the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of of Christ is God. That's Paul. Every man who prophesies with his head covers and dishonors his head. Now we begin the letter. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. A man ought not to cover his head since she is the image of glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. But man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason... Because of the angels, women should have a sign of authority on her head. All of that is the letter. Back to Paul. 
In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so is man also born of woman. That directly contradicts what has just been said. But everything comes from God. Now back to the letter. Judge for yourselves. It is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. Paul, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So, I already covered that slide. And here we come to another one. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14. As in all the churches of the saints, and this is quoting from the letter, women should be silent in the churches. But they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And now we have in Hebrew an emphatic adversative, meaning this is now going to deny that. What, you could say, for that adversative, did the word of God originate with you, men, or are you the only ones that has reached? And what you need to know about the word you is it's plural. Now, in Greek, as in Hebrew, sometimes the plural form indicates men and women. But it cannot mean women. This you cannot mean women. It can only mean men or the whole congregation. In Jewish worship services, women sat in the back in a closed chamber. They normally did not participate unless there was a responsive reading. This statement fits well with this practice. Jesus broke custom when he called the woman bent over to come to him where he was. Furthermore, he laid his hands on her at a time when a man, especially a rabbi, was not to look at or touch a woman. Um, I'm going to skip this, and I, I reiterated this with the italics on that. So now First Timothy 2. I somehow didn't get the slide in with translation. But if women, this is where Paul says, I'm, I do not permit a woman to teach. It's really, I am not permitting a woman to teach. This is not an all-inclusive for everyone command. This is a statement of fact. I am not permitting a woman to teach. Let a woman learn in silence with no full submission. I permit no woman to teach or have authority over the man or husband. She is to keep silent, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. So the injunction, let a woman learn, is revolutionary. Recall Mary at Jesus' feet. He was, she was learning from a rabbi. That was unheard of. Women didn't learn from rabbis. They weren't allowed to. Paul says, let a woman learn. This contradicts also the Roman household code that forbade women to be educated, let alone teach. All learners, men and women in Paul's day, were to learn in silence with full submission to the teacher. So this is just talking to women, but it is also true of all people. The word for authority, authentic, means full authority or tyrannical authority. The second meaning of this word is to murder. <laughs> so it gives you an idea of the very violent 
possibly origin of this term. And this kind of authority, Jesus forbade his church to exercise. So it's not just women that shouldn't exercise this kind of authority over men. It is all that should not exercise this authority. The issue here for Paul is not headship but deception. He points to the first creation of man then woman and the issue of deception. The man was not deceived but the woman was. So the word save, sozo, with its range of meanings means here to keep safe from deception. According to the household codes, a woman's role was to stay home and raise their children with little social time available. It is likely that Paul is dealing in Ephesus with false deceptive teachings regarding the role of women that may have foreshadowed the later Gnostic teachings. Only women could teach hidden knowledge. Women were to give up their femaleness, including sex. So this is, again, a particular... uh, statement for a particular time and place. So even if we dispute Eritrea's view of Paul using quotes from Chloe's letter, the evidence supports the view that God's original or preferred will was for everyone to govern the natural world and to serve as priests. Only with human failure does scripture advocate headship God's adapted will. And that the passages that seem to promote male headship, Paul wrote to specific churches dealing with specific and thus local problems. The council, therefore, only applies in principle and not in direct application. This is the method the early Adventist church used to defend Ellen White's ministry in terms of these Pauline passages. We have a couple of statements by Ellen White, but our time is up, and I want to field a few questions or observations. Yes, Bruce. I, I find the logic curious in Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2 there, that Paul apparently thinks the woman's to blame because she was deceived, but the man sinned deliberately and he gets a pass. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I think he's he's only looking at deception as the problem, and and the women were being deceived in in Ephesus. And and the man sinned deliberately. Yeah. He wasn't deceived, which seems to me a lot worse. I don't think he's giving gradations of what's worse or better. He's simply addressing a problem. He's also using typical rabbinic ways of thinking. Yeah. If um, if all of scripture would have been written by women instead of men, <laughs> would this have made a difference? <laughs> you should have said if all scripture could have been written by women instead of men. Yeah. You know, I, I, I honestly think human nature is human nature, and that there are cases where women tend to take too much power to themselves, just like men. Um, so I, I don't know that, that we would be dealing with something radically different, maybe just a change of shoes on feet. Brian? Yeah, um, I'm just, I wasn't intrigued by the patriarchs, because men were in charge, but it seemed like the women were running them. Women had a lot of say, didn't they? Yeah. So Keep not, Sarah your wife. I'm, and, I'm not sure how that yeah. shit thing works. Ask your wife how it works. So, as a practice in many societies, the dominance of women, was that, does it stem from all this, or is there a different... a different... 
message they got to them that they are particularly dominant over women that still exists today in many societies. I mean, that, did that come from a different source or from... The Bible suggests it came from the fall. That it, it's simply the result of the working out of the principle where, you know, you think about how we start blaming people and, and immediately uh, our relationships are becoming tenuous and less, dis- less trustful and uh, things fall apart. And when things fall apart, the people who are stronger will tend to dominate. They tend to want to make order out of chaos and do it their way and make everybody march to their tune. But in Muslim community, it's totally gross. How, ca- how come they are still so far behind? Yeah. Well, what do you think? <laughs> right? It's unfortunate that uh, many enough men has treated women and women who in the communication so badly that we've got the women lives movement right stuff. But there's a in a man's deep question is how far the women would go if they are totally liberated. We, we, if we totally liberate men, how far will they go? <laughs> yeah. But there's like in the women's lip. But we can't trust women, we can only trust men, right? Male characters are so bad, let's make let's somehow find an extinct them. So there's there's always this that that isn't what women's lip is about. That isn't all about women's lip is about equality. And yes, there were extremists in it when it began, most movements begin a little extreme. But its ultimate goal has been equality between men and women. It was women's liberation that brought equal pay to women. You think of how many women would be paid much less today, including in the Adventist church, if it had not been for equal pay. I have a question going back a ways to your discussion. What Could you encapsulate for me the difference between the Radical Reformation and the Protestant Reformation? The Radical Reformation, okay, you have the Protestant Reformation started with uh, John Wycliffe and then Huss and Jerome and then Luther and Calvin. And, and we think of, generally think of the, of the Protestant Reformation as Luther and Calvin. Uh, and then there arose the Anabaptists who uh, believed in, in choice baptism instead of infant baptism and had some other uh, views and were more Arminian in their viewpoint and that became the Radical Reformation and the, the Reformation did not appreciate the Radical Reformation uh, <laughs> so it was the Radical Reformation that brought non-violence into the picture uh, because the Mennonites uh, yes uh, those three texts in Revelation that you I forgot yes <laughs> I thought of you with the minute I realized, oh no, I didn't get those in. Um, but I think those are pretty powerful because they allude to Exodus 19. And that mm-hmm. is the minor voice yeah. that gets trampled on after the, the golden calf. That's right. Uh, so it's like saying, we're going back to Eden, which Revelation does anyway. Right. We're going back to the way that it's supposed to be 
And that's probably one of the strongest voices in favor of that approach. Yes. Thank you. What's the text? Romans it's Romans one six. Right, Revelation one six, Revelation five ten, and Revelation twenty six. Twenty verse six. There are three of them. Yes. We often look at equality and you know, I think we often even use the word empowerment. So we tend to believe that if we give one side power, that that means we're taking away power from the other side. We are weakening it. And I don't know that looking at it that way is helpful. That idea that one side gets power, the other side is somehow weakened. That's actually not what equality is about. And being able to serve as members of a priesthood equally empowers everybody all the way around. It does not weaken one side. And I would like to say, I hear Paul saying this, let's forget equality, okay? Because that, that becomes a big can of worms. What we really need is love. Love empowers the other side. If we were both doing that direction, there would be no issue at all. That, that's what I, I have the same thought, that it's not the equality. We can never be equal because God made us female and male. It's, it's different, um, um, what do you call it? Um, we are, we are just very different, but together we complement this whole thing. And so we need both, like children. If they yeah, and if I could, if I could add a, a plug for that, we need both in ministry. Yes. For that very reason. Because women need to be there for women. Men cannot help women like women can help women. Um, yeah, we both help each other in different ways, but, but there's, there's a missing link there when we don't have both. All right, um, I think we need to go. So let's after. Father, thank you for, in our discussion and our deliberation, for bringing us to the all-encompassing principle that must rule our hearts and our minds, and that is the principle of love. May we exemplify that principle to one another. In Jesus' name. Amen.